You know, sometimes as we're doing these series together, uh, I put together what's called a bumper, which is a lead into the message. And sometimes by the end of the series, I'm sick of the song. I don't think that's going to happen with this song. There is something about this song that just ministers at such a, a deep heart level that I don't think I'll ever get tired of hearing of his good, good love for me in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning and welcome this morning to our worship. And as you, uh, many of you know, we have been doing an expository series through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, an expository series is simply designed to ascertain what was it that the original speaker meant when he spoke, and what was it the original hearers would have heard as he spoke. So it's not lifting things out of context to speak on them, but it's trying to understand things within their greater context so that we can understand what the author originally meant. And so we've been doing this thought block by thought block study through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today we are actually going to finish up chapter 7 together, or I'm sorry, chapter 6 together. So we are two-thirds of our way there after this morning. And all God's people said... No, 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 you're supposed to say, no, I can't believe it's coming to an end. This is too good. I don't want to see it come to an end. That's how I feel anyway. All right, fine. Be that way. Take your Bibles with me this morning. Join me today in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to uh, begin reading in uh, verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. And what I'm about to read to you is, is probably going to be quite familiar but maybe you've never really understood it in context as we're going to look at it today. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning uh, in verse 25, Jesus said the following words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let me say that again because there's some folks here today that need to hear this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, or, nor about your body, uh, even what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Question. Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can even add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, the greatest king of Israel, who had the greatest dominion, who had the greatest wealth, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these simple flowers of the hills. But... If God so clothed the grasses of the field which are alive today and tomorrow are thrown into the oven or gone, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For I want you to understand the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father already knows that you need them. But seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you are so anxious and worried about will simply be added to you. Therefore, 
do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, this morning we just come before you and acknowledge that you are God, that all things lie within the control of your power, that you are a God who is magnificent and beneficent. You are good, so good. And we come as very needy people in a world that is filled with chaos, in lives that are often chaotic. And we just need to spend time with you in heaven where, where there is no hurry, where there is no anxiety, but perfect peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. I pray, Father, as we walk through the words of Jesus this morning, that you might help us to appreciate just how wrong anxiety really is for those who name the name of Christ. Help us as we walk through this now by your Spirit's enablement. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, context. Let's kind of drop this back into where we're looking. Uh, we've considered the introduction to the good life, the instructions to the good life, or the character qualities that God is seeking to uh, have be real in us. We've looked at the interior of the good life. This is that life of secret holy habits of worshiping our Father. Coming off that section, Jesus now gives us a number of imperatives. Now, an imperative is a command. Jesus is issuing several commands, four of them to be exact. We're on the second one. But these commands are given to us to help us to assess and to evaluate the reality of our relationship with the Father. You see, it's one thing to say, I know God. But it's quite another thing to have a living, vital relationship with the Father that is being nurtured through these various spiritual practices. Practices like generously trusting the Father with money, which actually he gives us, by the way. And then it's the idea of prayer, graciously approaching the Father. And then again, this whole idea of fasting, showing our great desire for the Father as we let go of the things of the earth. These habits were designed by God to nurture and build this relationship with him. But the challenge of Jesus' day was this. The religious people of Jesus' day, the, the religious elite, the very people that everybody else looked up to as the pinnacle of what it meant to know God, Jesus exposed them as frauds. These people who knew the Torah from one end to the other, all the definitions of the various rabbis down through the centuries, these people who had all these spiritual habits and practices, but they were all done for show. Jesus says, they don't even know God. And you're like, how can that be? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. Jesus later exposed them. He says, you are of your father, the devil. How can this be? And so Jesus is actually trying to be careful in these following uh, admonitions, these imperatives, to make sure that we really understand what it means to have a vital living relationship with the living God. I'm afraid too often we just kind of push by all that and just say, I'm good to go. The Pharisees thought they were good to go. 
But they were hypocrites. They really didn't know God. And so Jesus is taking time to bore down into these truths. Do you really know the Father? Do you really have a vital living relationship with him? And so what Jesus does through these imperatives is he gives us a number of tests, if you will. Uh, when we were together last week, we looked at the first of these imperatives, and within that, there were two basic tests. He was giving us the question of loyalty. Where do your loyalties really lie? And it's from these very practical realities in our lives that we can honestly assess our relationship with the Father. The first one was the heart test. Do you really see the Father as your reward? Is he truly the one who rewards you? Do you value him above all the things of this world? Jesus says that we can tell the reality of our relationship with the Father by how we handle our money and view our possessions here. How? For where your true treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you truly treasure up these treasures on earth, then the heart has exposed you. You may not know the Father. But if you truly treasure up the one who is in heaven as your true reward, your true treasure, and you use the resources he's given you in your life for his kingdom's sake, you get it. Then he gave us this eye test. A healthy eye is one that sees and responds to the Father's word. The word makes entrance through the eye into the soul, and then it animates our lives. A healthy eye, someone who knows the Father, is somebody who is responsive to his voice. But an unhealthy eye is one that is consumed with the trinkets and pleasures of this life, wasting our one and only life on the trivial pursuits of this life, just having a good time, you know, just here to have fun, as we talked about last week. If this light to you is darkness, how great is your darkness, is what Jesus said. If the truth of God's word is nothing more than, than stuff that's opaque, that you really can't understand, you really can't employ in your life, then how great is your darkness? Jesus would go on to say a number of parables where he would take someone who was self-deceived and he would say, and they've been cast into outer darkness. So these, these assessments, these, these uh, opportunities to do a self-examination, they're not trite. They're not, oh, whatever, Pastor Bill, you know, I know God, I, I know Jesus. No, 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 don't, don't take it in a trite manner. You see, you may know God, but does God know you? Jesus ends his series of discussions here in the book of, uh, or the Sermon on the Mount with this statement, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I will say to them in that day, I never knew you. But I know you, Jesus. No, you don't, because I don't know you. So you see, this stuff is strong. It's very strong. But Jesus wants to make sure that we're not just passing by the spiritual stuff as, oh yeah, I get that. I understand that. Do you? That's the point of these admonitions. That's the points of these tests, the heart test. You can tell if you know God by the way you handle possessions. The eye test, you can tell whether or not you know God by the responsiveness to his word. Today, we're going to look at another test. Today, as we looked last week at the question of loyalty, today we're going to consider the question of trust. A question of trust. Are you ruled by fear or are you ruled by faith? Jesus tells us 
that our response to life and its challenges reveals much about who and what we truly trust. If our trust is in ourselves and these things, then our blood pressure goes up with the stock market, and it goes down with the stock market. It goes up with the latest political poll, and it goes down with the latest political poll. It goes up with our bank account, and it goes down with our bank account. It goes up and down with our choices and actions of our children, of our friends, and even our enemies. Anxiety is a visceral response to fear and our inability to control particular situations or outcomes. So our blood pressure goes up and we become anxious. But the true child of the Father is not controlled by fear, but rather faith. And the result of a good, good, great, and powerful father is we pass the blood pressure test. We've had the heart test. We've seen the eye test. Today, we're going to take the blood pressure test. Does fear rule you, or is faith what rules how you view and look at life? So, uh, an alternative to today, the question of trust, uh, are you ruled by fear or faith? Another way of putting this would be, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Because your daddy and who he truly is will say a lot about how you live your life. So we're going to kind of pull down now. We're going to consider these issues in front of us. So let's begin by a simple definition of anxiety. Anxiety. You know, I'm going to give you a definition, but we all know what anxiety feels like, so I don't really have to do this, but I will anyway. Uh, a simple definition for anxiety is simply this. It is experiencing worry, unease, or nervousness typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And so this is a typical definition of anxiety. Anxiety is a very strong, subjective, visceral feeling that does not focus on the probable and produce action, but rather focuses on the improbable that we cannot control. Anxiety asks, what if? What if? What if? What if I fail? What if I'm seen as weak? What if the terrorists attack? What if the economy fails? What if I never get married? What if it's malignant? What if my child gets hurt? What if a plane crashes? What if I have a car accident? What if Hillary or Donald become president? What do I do? What if, what if, what if? Anxiety is like owning a crisis before it happens. Anxiety is fear in search of a cause. And it leaves us with this sense of foreboding. I know something's going to go wrong. Oh my goodness, it's been a quiet spell for a little while. I know the shoe is going to fall. And we have almost like a soundtrack going in our minds. And we're kind of thinking, you know, something's going to go bad here. I just have this feeling that something terrible is going to happen. I'm not sure what it is, but I just have this sense it's going to happen. I'm not sure why. Did you see a fin? I know I saw a fin. I know I saw a fin. And so we have this sense in our hearts and minds, it's, it's all going to come down. Oh my gosh, chicken little, sky is falling. Can I just say that to have this kind of a heart, to have this kind of an attitude in life, to have this kind of response to the unknown and circumstances of our lives that we just simply cannot control, not only is it unhealthy for ourselves, our blood pressure goes through the roof, but it also exposes the Father is not being good. 
think about that. Do you have a good and great father in your life, or don't you? How we respond to all of the things of life ultimately answer that question. Who's your daddy? You answer that by how you react. Now, just before we drill down into this and look at the scripture that's in front of us, I just have to say this. Uh, We're talking about anxiety. Anxiety has been called the epidemic of our age. It's funny, they have realized that anxiety took off beginning back in the 1960s, kind of increased in the 70s, 80s, and now it's off the charts. Uh, it, 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 It came into vogue and became an epidemic about the same time that God was pulled back from our country. So you're going to discover that this fear factor, which creates anxiety, has a direct correlation to faith. And so this is real. This goes on. And in my own heart and life, I have experienced as much, if not more, anxiety than most people in this room. I suffered from agoraphobia for 10 years. It is a panic and anxiety disorder. So I understand fully uh, what that's about. I come by it very honestly. Uh, my grandmother on my father's side was an anxious woman, Grammy, Grammy Walker. And the way that Grammy Walker handled her anxiety was not only did she nag everyone to death, but she also drank lots of red rose wine. That was Grammy. By the evening, Grammy was a little not Grammy. That was just how that was. Well, she handed on this anxiety disorder to her, her son, my father, Albert. And so I grew up in a home with my father who was just off the charts, anxious about life. He coped and he managed by mixing Valium and and two six-packs of beer every day. So by the end of the day, my father was not anxious, but he also wasn't terribly coherent. Um, His brother, my only uncle, uh, also, he died of alcoholism at 62. As some of you know, I have a younger sister who's only 45 years old. Her body's in its 70s because she is dying of alcoholism as well. So what I want you to understand is I I get this anxiety thing. I understand it at a level that maybe some of you don't or or some of you may even beyond what I've done. I don't know. But I just want to say that I'm speaking to something that I I hate to say I have personal experience in because I didn't want it, but I got it. And and I just want to say this. um, My my grandmother was an alcoholic. Her son was an alcoholic. Her other son was an alcoholic. And my youngest sister is an alcoholic. But the reason they're alcoholics is because of anxiety. That's how they managed it. That's how they coped with it. What has set me apart from my other family members is I met Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I can say. So faith plays a huge role in this whole issue of anxiety. In fact, I would say that faith is the missing component in most people's desire to be free from anxiety. Please hear me. Seek counseling if that's what you need. Please go get diagnosed if that's what you need. Don't don't ignore those things. And do get medication. God has blessed us with all sorts of ways to assist us in this process. But to me, the key element that often goes without talking about is the issue of faith in a good, good father that is meant to ultimately triumph. Not just manage, but triumph over anxiety. So I just want to put that up front, that I understand all the uh, residual issues. I'm not telling you not to get diagnosed. I'm not saying don't get medication. I'm not saying don't seek counseling. But I want you to understand that faith, I'm afraid, is the missing component in most people's uh, view of how to handle this. So let's get into the scripture. Amen? Let's see what Jesus has to say to us about these matters. 
So Jesus begins by giving us a command in verse 25. He says this, therefore I tell you, the word therefore is there because it actually connects back into the previous, we'll talk about that in just a second. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink or put on your body. Is not life more than food in your body more than clothing? And the answer is, oh my gosh, yes. Your life is more than merely the material necessities of life. In fact, it is about the kingdom of God. It is about the Father. It is about, it is about his will. It is about exalting his name. So our lives should not be consumed with merely getting the necessities and the luxuries of life and saying, woohoo, I get it. No. The necessities are necessary. However, over and above those is God's kingdom. This is the pursuit that he's admonishing us toward. And so Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, and he commands it. Stop worrying. Now, if I were to walk up to you and you were just fretting over something, and I would say, stop worrying. What are you going to say to me? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Get out of my face. You know, that's what you're going to say to me. After all, worry is not the kind of thing you can turn on and off like a, a switch, right? Oh, I'm worrying. Oh, I'm not. Okay. Thank you for telling me to put the switch off. It doesn't quite work like that. And so if I were to walk up to you and say, stop worrying, you would say, If Jesus Christ were to walk up to you, king of the universe, and he were to look you in the eye and say, turn it off. I think in that moment, you could go, oh, it's off. <laughs> Why? Because in worry, what we are doing is we are, we are exemplifying fear. We are fearful about the outcome of something or that we cannot control something. Newsflash. You do not control anything. You do not control your life. You do not control the life of your children. Some of you need to hear that. It's not up to you to control their lives. So Jesus comes along and he says, stop it. Because he is the one who's in control. And so the one who's in control can tell you, enough! And that's what he's saying here. Stop being anxious. And again, anxiousness is connected to fear. It is connected to the desire to control things. If I could put this just another way, looking back into the previous verses, I would say this. What Jesus is saying, therefore, is stop playing God in your life and in the lives of other people. That's what he's saying. Because that's what we try to do. The previous verse to this, he gave us a clear statement, a clear admonition. And the, the clear statement was, was simply this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll uh, be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money is the, is the way it's translated here. But I would say you cannot serve God and your own self-interests. And so he's basically clamping down and making it clear that you cannot serve God and mammon, either God and his way or you and your way. And if it's God and his way, then it's not your way. And if it's your way, then it cannot be God's way. You cannot have it both ways. You have to choose one way or the other is his point. And if your trust and your allegiance and, and, and all is in the living God, what do you got to worry about? But if it's not, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. 
because you have just taken the world and put it on your shoulders and now you have to make the outcomes happen as best you can. So he is being very forthright here. Either it is God and he's worthy of our trust or it's on you. You see, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is simply this. Without faith, according to Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he will reward those who seek him. And so the very essence of faith is there is a God and he is good and will reward me. That is the essence of faith. You say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Really? Faith is not only does he exist, but he rewards those who will pursue him. And so this is the dilemma that Jesus is kind of putting forward. Is God the Father truly trustworthy to actually control my life? Is he? Now, I'm assuming, you being here, that you're okay with the fact that there is a God. Okay, can we just assume that? Jesus assumed that with his audience, because in Israel in that day, there was nobody who didn't really believe in a God, but they just didn't have true faith in the living God. And so everybody just assumed there was a controlling power, uh, and I would assume that we agree that as well. But the question is, is he good? And is he powerful? Those are the questions that I think we kind of harbor. I don't know if I can really trust him. Is he really good, and is he ultimately able to make the best decision? So, with that in mind, Jesus turns to his crowd that he's speaking to, and he puts them in mind of, of something that they knew very, very well. So the question is, is God good? Look at the birds of the air. Listen, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We're actually going to take a peek at that in just a second. But let's look at the beginning part. The word look actually has the idea to, to focus on, to concentrate on, to deeply consider, to ponder. And so birds, beautiful birds. I have a bird feeder in my backyard. I can see it from a kitchen window. we got birds everywhere. I mean, both my downspouts at the front of my house have nests in them as the birds come and make their nests and they put their eggs in them. Yeah, so I had to knock them down every year and they rebuild them every year. It's okay, as long as they don't mind me moving their apartments from time to time. So birds just freely move about life. They just freely do whatever they do, and they don't do it with a sense of anxiety. Have you ever heard of a bird needing counseling? <laughs> they just don't. They freely move about by instinct because they know that they are going to have their needs met. They just swoop in and do this. They have eggs. They hatch their young. They feed their young. Their young are kicked out of the nest. Some of us need to learn that from birds too, by the way. And, and so and on it goes. The Bible says this, and I thought it was beautiful, and I thought I would just put it up here with this image. The Bible says, the eyes of all look to you, O God, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Wow. That's just gorgeous. And so, birds do not suffer from anxiety. They just freely live life. And they just know that when they go out to look for food, there's going to be something to eat. Whether you put it out for them, I put it out for them, or there's an inchworm who is trying to get across the yard. Man, that poor guy, he's going to be tackled. The other day, by the way, I was driving down 48, 
And um, you know those turkey vultures? They're everywhere. 48 seems to be like a meat market for them. You know, they just see things are hit and killed along that thing all the time. And so I was driving up towards the very end of it, and, and there's like five of these uh, telephone poles that you can plainly see in a row, and there was a turkey vulture sitting on the peak of every single one of those. I felt like dead meat kind of driving through there. <laughs> don't eat me. So, but you know, their needs are met. They don't get anxious about it. They simply uh, accept what God gives them. Uh, somebody made up a cute little rhyme talking about the difference between birds and us. I thought it was clever. Uh, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about in worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. So this question of anxiety speaks loudly about relationship. And it speaks loudly about what you truly believe about God. And so if anxiety rules us, then we're questioning God's goodness. We're questioning if he can truly do what's best and right in this situation without me monkeying it to make it happen. Hence the fear factor. Hence the outcomes are beyond my control. And so Jesus asks, uh, tells us to ponder the birds. But he also goes on to make this statement. Are you not of more value than they? And the answer is, that was kind of weak. We live in a day and age where, where we keep trying to lift animal life up to human life and bring human life down on a par with animal life. And so people are going, well, no, birds are really important. They're really special. Listen, if you go back to Genesis, you're going to discover that humanity was the culmination of God's creation. We are made in the image of God. And being made and formed in the image of God, we are unique and special of all God's creation, even the angelic hosts. We will judge angels as believers. That puts us above them. And so even in the will and plan of God, humanity was always the culmination of his creation. And so as we start to doubt, oh my gosh, is God good? I want you to understand, you've been created in his image to have relationship with him. Somebody says you can tell the value of something by what somebody's willing to pay for it. Think about that. What is it that God is willing to pay for you to have relationship with himself? How highly does he value you? How much is he willing to sacrifice for you to be his? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Are you of not more, more value than them? If God meets all the needs of the lower creation, won't he meet the needs of the higher creation? Won't he come to our aid and meet us where we're at? Yes, yes, he will. This is the price he was willing to pay for you and me to have relationship back with him. Uh, this verse from 1 Peter says this, knowing that you were ransomed, purchased back from the slave market of sin, from the feudal ways you have inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the very precious blood of Christ. Are you not more important than them? Yes. It being the first Sunday of the month, it is our habit, and it's only a habit, there's no admonition to have to do this, but we celebrate this thing called the bread and the cup. I'm going to um, 
bring this uh, to the forefront now. I want to ask those who will be serving to come forward. Uh, we're going to celebrate in this moment on this point of, of the message of God's goodness. And as they get ready to uh, hand out these elements and they come by, you grab both the cup and the, the little bit of wafer and we'll celebrate it together in just a moment. But I want you to listen to a song that you actually sang at the beginning of our service. How great the Father's love for us. Let that play out, think about that, and then we're going to partake together.
we're going to do something just a little different. I'm going to read some words from Jesus, but as we partake, I want you to say, Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ came to do the bidding of the Father in his desire that his children come back to him. Jesus said this. He said, uh, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Father. Great the Father's love for us. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Father. You can uh, hold on to those little cups, and there will be a trash can at the back by the curtain, so as you leave you can drop it off there. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul dwelling on these thoughts about the willingness of God the Father to sacrifice his own son's life for us. In Romans chapter 8 said this, If God be for us, then who can be against us? Amen? He went on to say these words, Because he, the Father, who did not even spare his own son, but was willing to give him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? Everything. Do you doubt the goodness of God? We need to remember how good he is as we go through these anxious moments of life. Does he not know what's best? Is his will not always the best? We need to trust him. This is where faith comes in. I believe that you are good. But not only is he good, he is also ultimately powerful. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 27. And which of you, Jesus said, speaking to the crowd, being anxious, upset, worried, can add a single hour to his span of life? And the answer is, yeah, good luck with that. It's not going to help you. You can't do that. It is beyond your control. You are, we are, powerless to control things. But notice what he goes on to say. Then why are you anxious about clothing? This is basic necessities. I want you to look at the lilies this time. You've looked at the birds. Now I want you to consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor they, do they spin. But I want you to know this. Even Solomon, the greatest king, who had the pinnacle of the kingdom, who had the greatest of wealth, who robed himself in the most beautiful of outfits, and all his glory wasn't even as beautiful as one flower. In God, in his wisdom, and in his power, he can clothe the grass of the field one day, and then he can, he can say it goes away, and then the next day it happens all over again. God is ultimately powerful, and none of this stuff ever tires him. He can do it over and over and over and over again. New flowers today, they're gone tonight. More flowers over here, they're gone. God is ultimately powerful, ultimately powerful. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they beautiful? Consider them, look at them, uh, enjoy them, and realize that your Father your father is the one who makes these beautiful flowers. And then he asks this strange little rhetorical question. 
or, or statement, O you of little faith. <laughs> the issue of anxiety in our, our, our lives is an issue of faith. It is an issue of trust. Is your father not good? Is your father not good? We need to stop here. <laughs> Is your father not good? Let me make this easier on you. Is your father good? Uh, all right. I was afraid somebody was not sure exactly how to put that. Your father is good, but your father is also immensely great and powerful. Consider these statements that God gave to Job as Job was wrestling with what God was doing in his life. Brace yourself. I will question you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Have you comprehended the vast expanses? Surely you know. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deep shadows? Tell me if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Can you bring forth the constellations and their seasons? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set God's dominion over the earth? That's a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Tell me if you know all this. an interesting fact this past week. It just blew me away. Uh, somebody has estimated the number of stars in the universe, and they said that there were more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. Think about that. And then they said, do you realize that there are more atoms in one grain of sand than all the stars in the universe? So whether it's on the macro level or on the micro level, God is in control. He controls all things by the power of his might. Do you doubt the power and the greatness of God? Is God good? Is God great? Then Jesus has a question. Let me just push beyond this. Jesus has this question. If God is good and God is great, he goes on to say, Therefore, do not be anxious. Stop it. Shut it off. Don't do it. If God is good and God is great, then what do you have to be anxious about if he is your father? Oh, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Uh, what are we going to wear? When we act like that, 
We act just like the Gentile. Here the word is pagan nations. The nations that do not know God. The people that do not know God. We act just like them. And that doesn't honor God. That doesn't, that doesn't lift up his name. That doesn't build his kingdom. That doesn't do his will. All of it's opposed to who he is. We are called to live very distinctive lifestyles as the children of the Father and followers of Christ. And one of the more distinctive ways that we are recognized is when all of life is, seems to be coming apart, we aren't. Because we have a good and a great Father who is over all, and we can trust Him implicitly and completely. He goes on to say this, and here's the key, and I want to, I want to nail this and then we'll be done. The key to everything Jesus has been talking about is the statement here in verse 33, and we use it a lot, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? You mean I've got to find time in my life to kind of allot God, kind of here and here and here, and life's so full and everything's very busy? No. That's not what that means. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, preachers for many years was a man by the name of Dr. Adrian Rogers. Wonderful Southern Baptist uh, pastor. Uh, one time he was in Romania, shortly after the Iron Curtain had come down. He was in Romania, and they were helping a church on a missions project there. Uh, Adrian Rogers was swapping pulpits and speaking through an interpreter. Finally, Dr. Adrian Rogers asked a Romanian pastor one time, he goes, what do you think of Americans? Should know better. Uh, the pastor said, well, you asked. He says, what I think of the American church is you're too committed. He said, what? Isn't that a good thing? And the Romanian pastor went on to say, no, it's actually not. You see, anytime a new word comes into the language, and the word commitment is a relatively new word, it always replaces an old word. He said, when the word commitment came into vogue in the United States in our English language, it replaced another word that was very different. And the word that commitment replaced was the word surrender. You see, there's a radical difference between commitment and surrender. Commitment says, I'm still in control. Surrender says, I give up control. Commitment says, I'll do my best to work it into my agenda. Uh, surrender says, God, here's my agenda. Surrender is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This actually harkens back to the last uh, thing we looked at where it says, make your choice. It's God or your way. You can't have it both. Make a decision. Cast your lot. It's either with God or it's with you. And this statement is parallel to that statement. Put first all the things of the kingdom of God in his righteousness. Give him control. Give him complete control. Uh, it's just not the Sermon on the Mount without C.S. Lewis. So let me throw Lewis in here as to what, he, what he's saying. Here it is. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Give me all of you. This is what God is saying to you. Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time. I'm not asking you to fit me more in your calendar. Not so much of your talents. Those are fine. Or your money. I don't even so much want your work. I want... That's right. I want all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman. I've come to kill it. No half measures will do. I do not want to prune a branch or a branch here or there. Rather, I want the whole tree to be pulled out. 
hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams, turn it all over to me, give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, what's God going to give us? Oh my gosh, what are you waiting for? If you give God this piece of turf that's just barely existing and he's going to give you yourself, what are you waiting for? Give yourself to him and then he will give us his will and it will become our will and then he will give us his heart and it will replace our heart. This is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. It's not, oh, I've got to try and squeeze in a little bit of money for God, and I've got to squeeze in a little time, and I've got to show up on a Sunday morning. Doesn't God know how busy I am? Yes. And that's the problem. We are anxious people because we are trying to control our own lives. But if we would surrender control of our lives to the one who is both good and great and put his kingdom first, we would discover that the anxieties and the frustrations will start to evaporate because he will live his life through us. Right now, you're trying to do both, and you can't do it. He wants all of you. Pursue him, 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 pursue him. Don't stop chasing him. And you will discover that in him is everything, everything you've been wanting. Okay, this brings us to the end. If you will surrender yourself to him and put first the kingdom of God, his name and his will above all, everything you've been looking for and needing for life, he's going to give you. Let me conclude with this statement. When you make the Father and his kingdom your priority in life, he makes your needs his responsibility. We say that one more time. When you make the Father and his kingdom your priority in life, he makes your needs his responsibility. But when you make yourself and your kingdom your priority in life, you make meeting your needs your responsibility. I don't know which one you'd rather have but I know which one I want, and I know the one that I have been experiencing for many, many years now, and I would trade it for anything. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? The Pharisees would have said, Abraham is our father. <laughs> Jesus said, no, no, Abraham's not truly your father. Satan's your father. They were schemers. They were liars. From the very beginning, Satan was such, and through his children, he was trying to manipulate and control and make everything happen. And so they were very hectic, very anxious, very upset people, always trying to manipulate to get what they wanted. Who's your daddy? If it is Father in heaven, he is both good, good, good father, and he is great, powerful, Father, just give yourself to him, and he will give you a life that is without anxiety as you pursue holiness 